Good evening. It is so good to be here. If you are visiting with us, you're honored guests. Thank you for being here. I know my family is included in that number tonight, so thank you all for showing up. And happy Father's Day. Now, this is my first time speaking to this congregation, so if it goes really well, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm, I'm Wyatt Fairman. I'm your summer intern, and I've been blessed to work with an incredible congregation this summer. Thank you so much for your hospitality and your kindness and for growing with me as I tr try to work, do some good here. Now, if this goes really terribly, my name is F.H. Gates. All right. <laughs> I can say that. He's in Brazil. I want to take just a second, I think for a serious moment, I would be amiss if I didn't truly extend my gratitude to those who have worked well with me, just worked so hard uh, since I've gotten here, uh, starting with the eldership, thank you for this opportunity and the opportunity to speak tonight, uh, the deaconship, and in case you read the bulletin, no, Jake actually really is good at kickball, I was just messing with him. Um, uh, for everyone here, just thank you so much for welcoming me with open arms, especially on a day like today, which is Father's Day. And if you're looking up here and you're wondering why on earth is our intern speaking to us on Father's Day, well, that's a fantastic question. I don't know either. But I do know that if there was anyone unqualified for this topic, it was me. I'm not a father. But I do know a guy who is a father. And I've made so many parallels in my life, and also he's made them for me from time to time, about the relationship between the father, the patriarch of the household, and the God that we serve today. And so I thought, yeah, I may not be qualified for this sermon, but I know who is. And I decided what I'll do is I'll take some childhood lessons that my dad has taught me and give them biblical applications. And I got three of those for you tonight. Just little quotes that he would tell me growing up that have stuck with me that I think are a lot deeper than meets the eye. And so the first one I would like to introduce to you is this one. It's not that one. That's my dad. Sorry, just meant to show you a picture. This one. When I was a little kid, I didn't do this thing called thinking. As a college student, I still sometimes neglect to do this thing called thinking, thinking before I speak, before I act, before I do. Sometimes I get into a rush of things and I just completely don't think. And my dad would always compare that to Winnie the Pooh. Is that, I think it's an actual quote from Winnie the Pooh that he was quoting me all these years. He'd say, think, 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 Winnie the Pooh. And what he was telling me was just to slow down, think, Think about what you're saying. Think about why you're saying it. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And when I was trying to make a biblical application to this, I, I didn't really know where to look because there's not a good example in the Bible where uh, somebody didn't think a decision through before they made it, right? No. So I went to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. And that's where I'd like to start with you tonight. <clears throat> And we'll start reading in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I grew up hearing that story, the first ever murder. <laughs> One of the worst sins recorded in the Bible right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 4. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. Did Cain just not take a second to think about the, the consequences of his actions? Well, that's more than obvious. But there's some other details hidden within that context that really meet the eye. You see, the way Cain looked at this was he put God over sin. Now, who here knows what a fraction is? Pretty much all of us, I'd imagine. If I give you a fraction that is, say, five-eighths of a pizza slice, there's five slices of pizza that I eat, but there's eight total slices in a pizza. This is real simple math. Those are two different whole numbers representative of different things. Cain's problem wasn't that he put God over sin. The problem is that he quantified sin at all. He gave it some leeway. He gave it some breathing room when it wasn't necessary. So for a while, he did what God said. He continued with his offerings as not robust as they may have been. But he also gave sin some leeway. He gave it an open door. And that's a problem seen throughout the biblical context and history and to this day, it's things that we still do. I ask you to turn to James with me real quick. James chapter 1. Now, I know this is a really popular verse. It's, James chapter 1 is one of my favorite passages because it's one that my dad has drilled into my head ever since I was young, and I'm forever indebted to him for that. But James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we have two completely different time frames that we're working with here. We have the literally right by creation, as early as early gets, and then we have James, which is in the New Testament times. But if you look carefully, I think you'll see an exact parallel between what Cain did wrong and what's taught in the book of James. We've heard the formula before. We know we need to be slow to speak. We know we need to be slow to anger. We know we need to be quick to hear. Those things complement each other well. But in the example of Cain, I ask you one more time to read it with me. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now, the Old Testament does this thing where it sometimes really doesn't give you more context than it needs to. I don't know what Cain said. I really want to. I want to know if it was something said in peace. My guess it was probably something more in a yell. And that got me thinking, 
Cain spoke to Abel before he murdered. I wonder just maybe if he intended on murdering Abel when he spoke to him. We don't know that. Again, the Old Testament doesn't give us context whatsoever. But I was watching this video on Facebook the other day, and this quote came up that I thought was interesting. The reason people shout is because they are becoming further away in thought. It's not necessarily like if I'm standing on one side of a room and someone's on the complete opposite side of the room and I'm shouting so they can hear me. It's a similar idea, except it's mental. It's if I'm not communicating something with you and we're not coming to some sort of agreement or have some sort of cohesive idea about what's being discussed, we're separating in our thoughts. And when there's separation, there's more friction, there's more power and thrust into trying to get our point across that everything rises. It becomes a shout. It becomes a yell. So when we read about Cain speaking to Abel, his brother, well, he wasn't slow to speak. He certainly wasn't quick to hear. In fact, we have no evidence that supports that Cain did much hearing at all. And clearly, he wasn't slow to anger. If he had taken a moment to think things through, I wonder what would have been different. Because God warned him earlier. God gave him the recipe. The Lord said to Cain in verse 6 of chapter 4, Genesis, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. By saying you must rule over it, God is simply saying it's possible to rule over it. And that's an element we've seen throughout the entire context of the Bible, that sin can be defeated, that we can reign over it. The problem was Cain made it a fraction. Yet he may have told people that he prioritized God, he may have acted the part, but there was a denominating factor that was still there, that he allowed into his life. And it took away from the whole or sum of God. And it led to him being unable to think, think, think. But another lesson my dad taught me was not everything has to be a thing. Now, I don't know if you've experienced a stubbed toe before, but I gotta tell you, it is one of the worst pains known to mankind. I mean, I, I can't think of much that's worse because you have so many nerve endings on that toe that when you stub it and all of a sudden for, I mean, 10 whole seconds, your world is just ending. And then most cases, you're fine. I had a situation a bit more serious than that at this building. This is the school that I grew up at, Glen L. Martin Elementary School. From four years old to 13, 14, whenever I left to go to high school at that point, so many memories there. My mom taught music there for many years. I love that place. But one day, we were outside at recess, and I had a friend named Kendall Foster. Kendall isn't the brightest rock in the gravel road, okay? And he walked up to me very gingerly, very much in pain. He's kind of grabbing at his chest. And I said, Kendall, what's wrong? He said, man, I'm having a heart attack. 
And I said, you're having a heart attack, mind you. We're, we're probably like eight years old, okay? Like, we didn't know any better. But I heard him say he was having a heart attack, and I said, no, we've got to fix this. This is a problem. I said, follow me. This is an emergency. Well, we rush out from the playground into the school hallways, and I mean, we are kind of side hustling just through the hallway, passing by teachers right and left. I don't know why it took so many teachers for them to stop two little kids running through the school hallway, but it did. Finally, we see our PE teacher. And that's when he gives us the news that it's really quite impossible for an eight-year-old to have a heart attack. And at that point, you would think Kendall would start crying. No, he just looks at me and goes, oh, okay, never mind, and walks away. Not everything has to be a thing. There's a time and a place for it, for sure. But when you look at this dramatic theme and element, it's clearly seen throughout history. In fact, it's so seen that I would dare argue that maybe complaining in of itself is part of human nature. And I think the perfect example of that is seen in Exodus 32, if you'll turn there with me now. Exodus chapter 32. Start in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graveling tool and made a golden calf. They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And that's a popular story again in our Bible class. But at the same time, I think the way this chapter starts out might be the perfect description of the children of Israel. When the people saw that Moses was delayed, it's when they decided they needed to act. They had no patience. The fact that Moses hadn't returned was a problem for them. So they start working together to come up with their own gods, their own thing to do. Maybe it was the past time. Maybe they were genuinely concerned. Either way, they were making a thing out of nothing. Literally. I saw this blog, and I I don't know what... I'll put the link on the bottom there. It's not like a scholarly page. I just, I'm using their information to steal kind of a, a round number. But it says the children of Israel complained 14 times between the books of Exodus and I think it said Deuteronomy. 14 times. Now, these would be serious complaints. Complaints about leadership, complaints about not having food, not having water, clothes, practices, government, etc. These would be serious complaints, but they'd be complaints nonetheless. And every time, God would have to humble them. And you see this time after time again that they would just complain things weren't going their way. And I, I would always think to myself reading this, I would preach, these children of Israel have it good and they don't even know it. 
I mean, 14 times. That's a lot. That's another picture of me and my dad. My mom's laughing. She knows what's coming. Back in, I think it was 2020, right before COVID hit, there was a football game played in Kansas City, Missouri. My mom was born in Kansas. She uh, wasn't necessarily a fan of the team, but I adopted uh, the Kansas City love and became a Chiefs fan as a result. And they actually played some team called the Tennessee Titans. I hope no one likes them. Um, anyways, we beat Tennessee in that game and went on to go play the Super Bowl. And we won that game with one small caveat that haunts my dad to this day. It was cold. I mean, it was really cold. In fact, the news people and weather people and sports people, they were all commenting on how there was an Arctic blast coming through Kansas City the week of that football game. Now, my dad and I still went, and we dressed up like that, and we have stories that go on and on from this game about how literally the muscles on our bodies were freezing. It was so cold. Y'all, I thought I'd been to the gym. I was feeling really confident, and then finally I started literally thawing out. I was like, oh, back to the status quo. Anyways, for years, we would talk about this day. And we would talk about this moment. And to this day, I can mention it to my dad, and a little chill goes down his back. And we do nothing but complain. Because if it's human nature to complain, it probably happens a lot. And that's when I really started thinking, how often do I complain? And by doing simple math and trying to count in my head, I realized that I probably complain more in a single day than the children of Israel did in centuries. We think 14 is a pretty round number to go off of. I remember driving here complaining about the car in front of me. I remember waking up and complaining because I was tired. Simple complaints, maybe. But when you think about it, they're not simple at all if it's all you do. And so my dad and I still reflect on Kansas City, and we have so many great memories. Our one complaint we take with it is that it will always be freezing cold. I wouldn't change it for the world, and I know he wouldn't either. But at the same time, now that we're safe, now that it's warm, now that we're comfortable, maybe, just maybe, we're making a thing out of nothing. And not everything has to be a thing. But this is the last thing that I want to talk about. This is one of my dad's favorite sayings to us as kids. Do what I say, when I say it, how I say it. These are the instructions. If I was ever not focused on a task, he would say, hey, do what I say, when I say it, how I say it. If I was ever goofing off, do what I say, when I say, how I say it. If I was doing something I wasn't supposed to, do what I say, when I say it, how I say it. And when I was a kid, that model really worked because I relied on him. I needed him for safety. I needed him to feel loved and valued. I needed him because he was my ride a lot of times and I couldn't afford to say no. Like, I needed him. And then I grew up and I went to college and I still need him. To this day, I may not do the best job at it, but I try my best to do well. I try to do what he says. I try to do it when he says it. And more specifically, I try to do it how he says to do it. And this 
idea, really, I made a complex for it, but we'll get to that in a second. No, sorry, I'm skipping ahead of myself, because we have to go to Jonah. And I think what we see in Jonah is like the exact opposite of what my dad was trying to teach me with this. If you want to turn to the book of Jonah, we're just going to read the first three verses, and then the lesson will about to be yours. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So just from these three verses alone, I don't know if you saw it, but we have something that I'm calling the what, when, how complex, courtesy of Kyle Fairman. We see a what, which when my dad's talking to me, it's what am I doing? Anything he says to do. When am I supposed to do it? Well, usually now is the correct response. In what way am I supposed to do it? Sometimes it gives me more context, but generally I'm supposed to do things his way. It's pretty straightforward. And in Jonah, it's the same thing, that comparison. What was Jonah supposed to do? Go to Tarshish. When was he supposed to do it? We can assume now would have been a sufficient answer. How was he supposed to do it? Well, God's way. And God, he just wanted it to get done. Now, what about us? What are we supposed to do? Anything God says to you. When are we supposed to do it? I would advise doing it now. And how are we supposed to do it? We're supposed to do it his way. You see, this should be the easiest lesson to learn. It was a really easy lesson for two little kids and me and my sister to grasp when we needed our dad for protection, for love, for food, for everything. It was the easiest lesson to learn. As Christians, it should be the same thing today, except this is what we do with it. And we started out with Cain having this idea that, yeah, he put God above sin, sure, but he gave sin some wiggle room. He gave it some quantification. And I ask you, maybe we do the same thing today. When our complaints represent our attitude and our outlook, and people know us for the negative things we say, maybe we're giving sin a little bit of wiggle room. When we stub our toe or some minute tiny thing happens to us and we can't deal with the pressure, maybe we're letting Satan and sin have some wiggle room. When we say these things rashly that may be rude or hurtful or we do these things that make us in the church by default look bad, maybe we're giving sin some wiggle room. The problem is that we're not doing what God says, when He says to do it, how He says to do it. It should be the easiest thing in the world to learn. And yet, I for one fail to learn it when and how He says to. And maybe at times you do too. It started out this idea that my dad was a drill sergeant. Do this, do that, do it this way, do it now. What started as obsessive commands quickly turned into love, and I thank you for it. Because when we look at this 
and we feel attacked, and we feel like God just wants to control us, that there's nothing to be gained from listening to Him. We can do this on our own just fine, right? No. Maybe we're trying to make a thing out of something that's God's thing. Just maybe we're doing it wrong. I learned a few things from my father. I learned real recently that it's a really bad decision to belly flop into a pool when you have ear problems and it can seriously hurt you. And it did. He was right. That wasn't a few years ago. That was last week. I learned that sometimes going to the freezing cold of Kansas City in a literal Arctic blast, it's worth it, right? 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 He's kind of nodding along on that one. I learned that sometimes the best way to recognize that God loves you is understanding that when you do what he says, when he says to do it, how he says to do it, that God has a why to it as well. And that why is always because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. So I ask you what's best for yourself. Is it best for you that you hear the word of God and that you believe in it and that you act on those beliefs, that you repent of your sins, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you're baptized for the remission of your sins? Is it best that maybe in your life you've given sin some wiggle room you gave it some leeway, and, and you never expected it ever to switch. You never expected in your life to put sin above God. And yet you have. Is it best for you that you change that? And look, I'm the most unqualified person in the world. I'm an intern, for crying out loud. I shouldn't be talking about this, but I had a really good teacher on earth and up there. I think maybe his words mean a little bit more than mine. So I ask that you consider them as we stand and as we sing.